Isaiah 29, verses 9 to 19. Be stunned and amazed. Blind yourselves and be sightless. Be drunk, but not from wine. Stagger, but not from beer. The Lord has brought over you a deep sleep. He has sealed your eyes, the prophets. He has covered your heads, the seers. For you, this whole vision is nothing, but words sealed in a scroll. And if you give the scroll to someone who can read and say to him, read this, please, he will answer, I can't, it is sealed. Or if you give the scroll to someone who cannot read and say, read this, please, he will answer, I do not know how to read. The Lord said, these people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is made up only of the rules taught by men. Therefore, once more, I will astound these people with wonder upon wonder. The wisdom of the wise will perish. The intelligence of the intelligent will vanish. Woe to those who go to great depths to hide their plans from the Lord, who do their work in the darkness and think, Who sees us? Who will know? You turn things upside down as if the potter were thought to be like the clay. Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, he did not make, he did not make me. Can the potter, pot say of the potter, he knows nothing? In a very short time, will not Lebanon be turned into fertile field, and the fertile fields seem like a forest? In that day, the deaf will hear the word of the scroll, and out of the gloom and the darkness, the eyes of the blind will see. Once more, the humble will rejoice in the Lord. The needy will rejoice in the Holy Spirit. Jesus, the needy will rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. A reading is 1 Corinthians 1, starting from verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God, for it is written... I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through, through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than a man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than a man's strength. Brothers, think of what what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Jesus, Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. 
that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him boast, boast in the Lord. The other day, someone kindly gave me a copy of Richard Dawkins' book, The God Delusion. Uh, the guy who had it wasn't a Christian. He said he went and bought it in the shop and started to read it and felt really uncomfortable about it, at the whole tone of the book and the way in which Dawkins really quite virulently attacks the whole idea of God throughout the book. And even though he wasn't a Christian, he said, I really don't want to read it and put it to one side. and was glad, actually, to pass it on to me. <laughs> Dawkins says, imagine with John Lennon, a world with no religion. Imagine no suicide bombers, no 9-11, no 7-7, no crusades, no witch hunts, no gunpowder plot, no Indian partition, no Israeli-Palestinian wars, no Serb-Croat-Muslim massacres, no persecution of Jews as Christ killers, no Northern Ireland troubles, no honour killings, No shiny-suited, bouffant-haired evangelists fleecing gullible people of their money. God wants you to give till it hurts. Imagine no Taliban to blow up ancient statues, no public beheading of blasphemers, no flogging of female skin for the crime of showing an inch of it. He clearly feels the world would be a better place without religion, glossing over the way that for most of the 20th century the USSR USSR was a society without religion, and it wasn't a wonderful place to live, really. Nobody knows how many deaths Joseph Stalin was responsible for. Some put the estimate as high as the entire British, entire population of the British Isles today. Who knows? Maybe 12 million died of hunger, 700,000 were shot, many more died in the gulags, 4 million were deported, and at least a million of those probably died. So Soviet Russia is a shining example of how well we can all manage to get along without religion. Not. Dawkins says Stalin doesn't count because he didn't do any of that in the name of atheism, whereas a lot of the evils in the world are perpetrated in the name of religion. I don't think that does the, the, the point, though, because all that illustrates is the way in which human nature is evil enough to use religion for its own purposes. And the problem then is not religion. You take religion out of the equation, human nature remains the same. It's not religion that's the cause of the problems, it's us and the way in which we live. I skimmed through the God delusion for the first time this week in preparing this sermon, and like others, I've been disconcerted by the way in which Dawkins, an amazingly intelligent man, writes at the level of a belligerent bloke in a pub who's had a few too many beers. In Terry Eagleton's response in the London Review of Books, he wrote, Imagine someone holding forth on biology whose only knowledge on the subject was the Book of British Birds and you have a rough idea of what it feels like to read Dawkins on theology. And that's pretty much what it's like. He attacks God as a generic type. He says, any kind of God and yet dismisses the Christian God on the basis of a cavalier treatment of the New Testament, saying it's all about original sin. Well, there's a lot more in the New Testament than original sin, and the doctrine of original sin was kind of 400 years later than the New Testament itself. So it is, it is a very argumentative, not a particularly accurate, and certainly not a very kind book. What's depressing from my point of view is that Dawkins has been so effective at writing on the populist level of the barroom brawl that this book is genuinely cited as the, the ultimate in knockdown arguments against God. 
You want to know why people don't believe in God? Read the God delusion. It's the standard line that people take. But it is. (laughs) What he seems to fail to notice is he's fighting a straw man while the real God watches him with some amusement in a totally different boxing ring. Why the God delusion? Because Dawkins approves of Microsoft's definition of delusion as a patently false belief held in the face of strong contradictory evidence, especially as a symptom of psychiatric disorder. So people who believe in God do so in the face of strong contradictory evidence and may be psychiatrically disturbed. He quotes with approval Robert Persig, author of Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, who says that when one person suffers a delusion, it's called insanity. When many people suffer from a delusion, it's called religion. And his other hero is Philip E. Johnson, who maintains that Darwinism is the story of humanity's liberation from the delusion that its destiny is controlled by a power higher than itself. Dawkins clearly thinks that he can adequately account for the universe as it exists on the basis of evolutionary biology rather than positing the existence of God. As opposed to the hypothesis that there exists a superhuman, supernatural intelligence who deliberately designed and created the universe and everything in it, including us, Dawkins advances his alternative theory. Any creative intelligence of sufficient complexity to design anything comes into existence only as the end product of an extended process of gradual evolution. That's us, obviously. There's no room for God. Clearly he's building on his earlier works, The Selfish Gene and The Blind Watchmaker here. Dawkins argues that life results from the non-random survival of randomly varying replicators. That's a little phrase he's quite quite proud of. It could go on a t-shirt, he says. The non-random survival of randomly varying replicators. In other words, it is, it is totally random, but it is survival of the fittest. So it's not random what survives. The fittest and the best and the most able survive. And what are all of us but self-reproducing robots? We've been put together by our genes, and what we do is roam the world looking for a way to sustain ourselves and ultimately produce another robot child. That is the sole purpose of our existence, according to to Dawkins' view of of the universe. We are merely vehicles for the propagation of genes. That is what it's all about. His first major book was The Selfish Gene, that suggests in actual fact we are not independent beings at all. Genes rule the world and we are merely vehicles for them to carry on ruling the world through us and carrying on their propagation through us as individuals and as families and through our children and grandchildren. Dawkins calls the ideas and the beliefs that pass from one generation to the next memes. This is a phrase that he's invented to suggest that, that cultural ideas and, and uh, cultural perspectives and thoughts and religion and stuff like that are passed down from culture to culture, not because we intellectually have the ability to think these things through, but they are also, to some extent, genetic. What we think or what we believe is actually just what we are programmed to think or believe by the genes that exploit us to propagate our own existence. So blind faith is one such meme. It's like a virus that secures its own perpetuation by the simple unconscious expedient of discouraging rational inquiry. 
So blind faith in God, and, and faith in God must be blind because there's no evidence for God, that is a result of a gene that simply switches off our ability to think clearly, and because we're stupid enough not to think clearly, that is why we continue believing in God. But if Dawkins is right, I want to say that the ruthless, rational inquiry by which he sets so much store must be as much a product of genetic dominance as our supposedly irrational belief in religion. Being ruthlessly rational may help your genes survive in the universe, but that doesn't mean that what you think actually bears any necessary relationship to the universe as it really is. It may just be that because you're rational and you think that kind of way, you can survive better and your genes can propagate themselves better, but how you think doesn't necessarily bear any relation to the truth. We could all be, us rational people, like characters in the film Matrix, whose consciousness of the world in which we live bears no relation to reality as it actually is. If you've seen the film Matrix, you know that people think they're in the world, but in actual fact we're all kind of just being used for our resources by machines. And what we think is real is actually all in the mind. And Dawkins' picture of the universe is pretty much the same. We are all programmed by genes for their purpose, and what we think is real may just be in our minds. It may may have no firmer basis in reality than that. If I am merely a temporary host for genes intent on propagating themselves through my body, then the rational sense I have of being a thinking autonomous agent is false. I cannot trust who I think I am anymore. Dawkins cannot bracket out the rational and say, well, this bit has advanced to the point where it is no longer controlled by the genes which control the existence in the world. He can't say, we've broken free of that now because we're rational beings. No, if you're a rational being, you are still as much under the influence of these genes as anybody else is. All the thought and rational inquiry that goes into Dawkins' works is reduced to being the byproduct of ruthless inhuman genetic evolution. There is no rational basis for his rational argument when you pick it apart in that way. Dawkins quite likes the idea developed by Smolin that our whole universe is actually just a random mutation developed in the black hole of a previous universe so that there is an entire plethora of universes and we just happen to live in the one that supports life. A lot of people have cried foul at this point, and I think rightly so, since one of the traditional arguments against God has been Occam's razor, which says effectively that the simplest explanations are the best. Uh, The explanation for something that involves the least number of factors is the best. You mustn't multiply a whole set of conditions to make something true unnecessarily. So the fewer factors you need to explain something, the more likely it is that explanation is to be true. That's the nature of Occam's razor. And traditionally it's always worked on the basis that if you can explain the world without needing to posit the existence of a creator, then the simple explanation without God is probably the best. But the problem is that people now who want to bracket God out saying, well, actually, for it to work, probably you need an infinite number of potential universes of which we are just one. And a bit of us to say, but that, that doesn't apply to Occam's razor. That, that is sliced out of the truth. 
zone by Occam's razor, because which is simpler to believe in, in one single creator who is responsible for the universe in which we live, or to posit the existence of an infinite number of unknown and inaccessible universes that are probably out there, and we are simply just one of many. Occam's razor says the simplest explanation is the one with the least number of factors requiring to make it true, and therefore the existence of God is more plausible than the existence of all these other multiverses. Dawkins disagrees. He maintains that the multiverse theory, for all its extravagance, is simpler because it doesn't require any kind of intelligence to bring it into being. It just happens randomly over an infinite period of time. I don't agree with him, and I'm not happy by the way in which he dismisses my point of view by simply saying that my consciousness hasn't been raised by natural selection as much as his has. Where am I going with all this? And what does it got to do with 1 Corinthians? Why am I preaching on Dawkins rather than the Bible tonight? It's because in 1 Corinthians, in the passage that, that was read to us, Paul talks about the wisdom of this world and says when it comes to understanding God, the wisdom of this world is bankrupt. It is useless. It doesn't get you anywhere. Where is the wise man, he asks. Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher and debater of this age? Where is the scientist? Where is Richard Dawkins? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? Intellectuals from Paul's day to this have dismissed Christianity as so much stupid rubbish kind of accusations that are levelled against Christianity are not particularly new in this book. They are just popularised and made available on, on a wider scale than before. The message of Christ crucified, inane and offensive as it has been judged by so many people, is still the means by which God saves people in spite of it being dismissed and derided and discounted. That the Son of God should die on a cross to save us might make no intellectual sense at all. But Paul says the folly of God is wiser than human wisdom. And the weakness of God's Son, tortured, stripped naked and crucified on a cross, an object of hatred and ridicule, the weakness of God revealed there is more powerful than human strength. Because there God revealed his power to save those who have faith. To those of you who believe, he says, Christ crucified is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Those whom God has called to himself, you see the power of God's salvation and the wisdom of God revealed there. Whatever Dawkins may protest to the contrary, Paul declares that Christ crucified reveals God in a way that nothing else can or ever will. And Paul, and you may feel this is unsatisfactory, but he says, I'm not even going to bother to engage with the arguments of these people. Because when it comes to discovering God, they have nothing to say and nothing to offer. And his response is simply to say, those who deride Christianity on the grounds of their intellectual superiority are bankrupt in terms of having any understanding of God at all. 
So you don't need to be intimidated by the likes of Richard Dawkins because for all his undoubted intelligence and his great intellectual rigour, he has not grasped what God has made known to us. That the message of cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, says Paul. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. And God has done it this way because it was never his purpose to single out the super intelligent or the most powerful athlete or the person with the most perfect body to save them. God does not save people on the basis of natural selection. It is not the survival of the fittest as far as God is concerned. It's not a process of weeding out the inadequate and the weak and the poor quality so that only the best and the strongest and the most intelligent and the superior ones make it to heaven in the end. That is not how God's grace has been revealed. It's been revealed in weakness. Christ on the cross. Because that way God makes it clear that it's not the elite who are saved. It is anybody who is saved through the weakness of Christ. Christianity has never been a religion for the elite. In the second century, people complained, it's just just women and slaves who are becoming Christians. That was their criticism of Christianity, because it wasn't just all the the brightest and the best who were there. It was the nobodies who were coming to Christ. And Paul says, that is exactly what it's all about. It is for everybody. Nobody is excluded. Look around you, says Paul to the Corinthians. How many of you are really clever? How many of you are the movers and shakers in society? How many of you have friends in high places? How many of you are part of the ruling class? Not many. Not many. In the eyes of the world, you may not be successful or clever or powerful or famous, but what has God done, he says to them? God has chosen the foolish things in the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things in the world to shame the strong. God chose the nobodies in the world to bring to nothing the people who think that they are really something. And if you feel sometimes that people are looking down on you because of your faith, remember this, God has chosen you. And in Christ, he sorts your life out, claims you as his own, and sets you free on the inside. So hold your head high. Don't be intimidated. Don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that we should uh, shut our eyes and stop our ears and sing, Jesus loves me, this I know, every time we hear someone having a go at our Christian faith. But in the cross, we see how God chose to save the world. And that might appear shameful, that might appear stupid, that might appear impossible. But God did it that way because it condemns any sense of pride or achievement in our own intellectual ability. It's not for the elite. It's not for the brightest and the best. It's for all of us. And in Christ, God makes you right with himself. In Christ, God makes you wise. In Christ, God makes you holy. And you might not understand exactly how it works, but you don't have to. All you have to do is trust him. As it said in that first reading we had tonight from Isaiah chapter 29, verse 19, the humble will rejoice in the Lord. The humble will rejoice in the Lord. It's those who 
admit their inadequacies, those who say, I haven't got it all together, but those who say, because of that, I'm going to trust you, Lord. It's they who find Christ as their Lord and their Saviour, their wisdom, their righteousness, their sanctification from God. God saved us this way so that everyone could be saved. And it might not make the greatest sense in the world, but it is the gospel, and it does work, and God is faithful.